Welcome to the Free to Choose Media Podcast. Today's podcast is titled Understanding Ancient North America. Recorded in 1992, James Adavazio, Director of Anthropology and Archaeology at Mercyhurst College, and Paul Zalbrod, Frederick F. Seeley Professor of English at Allegheny College, ask, can physical archaeology and the oral traditions of existing Native Americans be brought together in the search for better understanding of past cultures? Listen now, and don't forget to subscribe to get updates each week for the Free to Choose Media Podcast. Jim, although we've, we've never met, I've known about your work, and something I've always wondered about was how you came to discover the Meadowcroft site. When I was hired by the University of Pittsburgh in 1973, I was in the process, actually, of finishing some archaeological work on Cyprus. I was hired to develop a North American archaeology program, but we didn't have time to conduct a systematic archaeological survey to try and find a site or series of sites near Pittsburgh that could be the focal point of the research. So I circulated word amongst my archaeological and historical colleagues in the western part of the state that we were looking for an area, say, within 50 miles of Pittsburgh that had been very lightly studied archaeologically, that had the potential for long-term prehistoric occupation, and that also had the potential for uh, long-term multidisciplinary research, not just with archaeologists, but with geologists, faunal and floral experts, climatologists, hydrologists, and so forth. Phil Jack, the late Phil Jack, a historian at California State College, uh, called me in April of 1973 and told me about the rock shelter at Meadowcroft. He said he'd visited it. He was a friend of Albert Miller, the owner of the property. So we went down to see it and immediately decided upon examining it to solicit permission from the Meadowcroft Foundation, which operates Meadowcroft Village, to begin work there in 73. So actually, it was a... uh, a discovery brought to us by someone else and Albert Miller, the landowner, in fact, their family's on the property since the 1780s, always as a child thought that Indians lived in that cave or rock shelter and uh, he fairly actively promoted study of it, but for a variety of reasons, nobody ever looked at it. Did you have any idea of the magnitude when you, when you first? No, anybody that's been there, when you first see the site, Uh, It's a fairly large shelf or overhang of rock. It's about 13 meters above the the floor of the rock shelter. And then the rock shelter itself sits on the north bank of Cross Creek, which is a small tributary of the Ohio River. It has about 55, 60 square yards of protected floor space where it never rains. So it's dry. Everything that would lead you to camp there now or hang out there now clearly would have been an attraction prehistorically for anybody moving up the Ohio River toward the interior of Pennsylvania or from the interior of Pennsylvania to the Ohio River. And it clearly looked geologically as if the deposits, the sediments in the site would be considerably deeper than they are in a lot of other rock shelters in this end of the state. And there were permanent springs on both sides of the rock shelter still flowing. Of course, Cross Creek itself, wouldn't have been polluted then the way it is now, would have provided readily available sources of drinking water. Food in that valley must have been abundant then, it still is today. So that combination of circumstances made it very attractive to us, but we had no idea how old it would turn out to be. We had no idea that deep in this case was gonna mean almost 17 feet of archeological deposits representing hundreds of separate visitations to the site, so. In a lot of ways, what we uncovered at the site surprised 
our most optimistic people in terms of what we hope to find there. What kinds of surprises did you find? What do you think was the most surprising? Well, the, the popular and technical media through the years have played up the fact that it's the, the oldest archeological locality uh, south of the glacial ice in the Americas, at least multiply dated site with very reliable information. Uh, we've always been impressed by the fact that people live there, though intermittently, uh, for a period of almost 16,000 years, all the major cultural stages or phases in the eastern woodlands are represented at that site. The, the preservation of animal material was phenomenal. There were almost 965,000 animal bones came out of the site, something like 1.4 million plant remains. So we're able to look at a changing panorama of human adaptation against a background of changing climate, flora, and fauna for an incredible length of time. And the people just hung in there all that time. They would go there apparently in the fall and maybe to a lesser extent in the spring of the year for very short periods of time, probably no more than a few days to a week, collecting seasonally available plant and animal foods and then moving on to another station or locality, either inside the Cross Creek drainage somewhere else or outside the drainage altogether, even after the beginnings of agriculture in the area and settled village life sometime after 1000 BC, you still see the rock shelter being used as a special activity locus yeah. for hunting and collecting. Yeah. Yeah. So we're getting a, a series of snapshots of 16,000 years worth of use of one spot, yeah. which is a pretty amazing thing. Now here's a question that archeologists maybe don't get, but you know, these are the kinds of questions I like to ask. Could you find any signs at all that people did things ceremonially, gatherings, dancing, storytelling, a kind of exchange of information, belief system? Well, we, Meadowcroft is remarkable for probably two reasons. In a partial answer to your question, for a long period of time, uh, people did in fact live there and all of our material record for that time is purely utilitarian. There are a few items that may in some, to some degree, represent ritual or ceremonial items, but by and large, at that particular site, the preservation of perishable artifacts that, that may well be directly related to that sort of behavior, some of the kinds of things we've excavated in rock shelters and caves in the Western United States, like prayer sticks right, and so right. forth, we don't have any of that. Yeah. And while we can confidently assume that they had a rich and elaborate ceremonial life because of, of similarly dated materials from the West and elsewhere where the preservation is good, at Meadowcroft itself, we're only seeing a very limited yeah. part of their life, the yeah. economic and technological side yeah. of it, yeah. which is what, why the kinds of things that you do that deal with the, the ideological, the aesthetic, the... Uh, non-material mm. sides add a dimension that the archaeological record to a large measure can only flit around. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's too bad sometimes that the, I mean, I'm constantly looking for ways in which these two kinds of evidence, if you want to call it that, can be collated. But, and it's, it's too bad that can't happen in a place like Meadowcroft, especially since, as you say, these people would come and go. And... Well, if there were a verbal tradition, for instance, I mean, the groups that you're dealing with are, have still extant in some cases, well, in most cases, they're still extant living representatives. They're, they're active cultural systems. 
however much change they may be from the aboriginal situation. At Meadowcroft, the last prehistoric occupation that we can identify is associated with the so-called Monongahela archaeological culture, which was probably terminated the same way the Erie were by yeah. the incursions of the Seneca or yeah. some other Iroquoian group. So they're even as early as the first French and English penetration of the area, they're already gone by and large. Yeah. So unless, unless the Seneca collective oral tradition has incorporated Monongahela uh, stories and tales mm -hmm. and what have you, which is probably unlikely since they were an enemy population, we don't really, there's no way to equate anything we find to that other dimension of that particular group. And then the further back you go, of course, we don't even know who the ethnic counterparts of these people are. So this brings up a question, you know, and, and how well we can we can extrapolate backwards, for example. I mean, if, if uh, there are some Iroquois stories, there's some Seneca stories, you know, the, the Seneca story of creation, for example, the whole notion of Turtle Island, the idea that, that the world as we know it now was originally the back of a turtle emerging to the surface of a vast body of water onto which a woman had been literally thrown from the sky. Uh, is there any possibility at all? And I mean, this is something that I'm constantly wondering about. And I'm wondering in a really wild context, is there any possibility at all that some fragment of that story may have been harvested by the Seneca conquerors, if you will, the way, the way in our culture today. We, we, you know, we have stories that we inherit in some kind of, possibly in some kind of distorted form. Longfellow's Hiawatha, for example. Oh, sure. comes from something that Schoolcraft has really unearthed from the Chippewa. And, and, and the conventional wisdom in my discipline is that, that Schoolcraft was an untrustworthy source because he believed in the noble savage, so to speak, which now isn't a very fashionable, <laughs> fashionable idea. But even when you read Hiawatha, when you read Longfellow's Hiawatha, which granted is a distortion, and when you read Schoolcraft, it's not a matter of yes or no. There are filaments of information there that strike me as being somewhat representative of what we would call a conquered people. I certainly wouldn't want to insist on this, but I would just like to open up the possibility that as far back as that may have been, something from those Metacroft people may have been picked up and relayed to the Senecas and maybe maybe even exists today in some kind of some kind of altered form. Well you know all all American Indian groups for whom we have uh, transcribed oral histories have, in some instances, complex creation or migration myths uh, or stories or explanations of where they came from. And in some cases, you have archaeological data that will support you know, mm -hmm. certain aspects of those stories. It's very tough uh, to isolate a particular story that a group, an extant group, or a recently extinct group whose stories have been transcribed or written down, a particular group's uh, adoption, if you will, of, of, of a story from another population, it's certainly 
Western Pennsylvania, the, the Meadowcroft area at the time the, that Washington was there surveying, in fact, in the immediate vicinity of Meadowcroft, uh, was notable for its scarcity of resident Indian populations. Mm -hmm. They had just uh, gone through a series of, of conflicts that had culminated in the extirpation or expulsion of the Monongahela. You had a lot of westward expansion across mm -hmm. Pennsylvania going on at the time. You had a sort of, uh, if not complete, no man's, no person's land, if you will, there. But uh, there were Delaware passing through, there were Shawnee coming up the Ohio, all sorts of things were going on so that it was conceivably possible that the Seneca or anyone else in that kind of a flux culture contact situation could have incorporated a wide number of stories from a wide number of people. If they learned, if they learned, if they got some kind of tool, for example, if, if one of those people passing through acquired a tool, an instrument, a way of doing something, wouldn't, wouldn't it follow that they also would have acquired some information and maybe some, some kind of, some kind of... That aspect of it, I, I know there's archaeologists that in certain areas that deal with certain time periods are intensely interested in pursuing the issue of what kind of information flow occurs with the transmission of material objects. The whole business about uh, reinvention as opposed to diffusion normally concerns the material item itself or themselves and not what the collective package of wisdom is that might go with the transmission yeah. of the yeah. item. Uh, an interesting example of that, uh, there is a, recently a, a new textbook came out on North American archeology span in which Brian Fagan, the author, talks about the fact that the appearance and proliferation in the Eastern woodlands of, of rituals that involve cannibalism relative to the dead conquered in warfare, mm was completely unprotein or non-protein related. It was a ritual yeah. activity, clearly. And that because it has a, a hoary antiquity in Mesoamerica, he, he following others says, well, maybe along with the package of domesticated crops that ultimately makes its way into the Eastern woodlands, this is one of those sets of ideas that percolates along with it. Well, there's, it's tough to test something like that. Yeah. It's real hard to... But you know that the Kanawita myth the story of the, the galvanizing of the Iroquois Confederacy mm -hmm. has a character, Atahartho, you know, the, right. uh, I think he's the Cayuga, who practices cannibalism according to a couple of versions. And, there, and I was just reading that today simply because I have my class doing it. And this is, a, this is an account that I really hadn't read carefully before. There's a very graphic description of, I mean, this man is actually making a stew. So there's your cannibalism. You know, now, allegedly this story, as far as we can tell, this story dates back to something like 1300 A.D. And certainly at that time, you're, you're starting to mm -hmm. see archaeologically the same kinds of behaviors uh, in, in, in the reality, in the archaeological record. You're finding individuals who've been mutilated in graves, you're finding individuals who have, in fact, been cannibalized. Mm -hmm. You're mm -hmm. finding uh, extensive signs of uh, warfare and conflict. And it's in, a, it's in a context that doesn't occur that much yeah. later than the appearance of domesticated plants, of, which are all ultimately right, of Mexican right, origin. Right, right. Yeah. See, that's a kind of epiphany in any civilization, it seems to me. When people learn, 
we just don't eat each other. You know, it's a significant kind of thing for a lot of reasons. And, and wouldn't it stand to reason that at that point in the history of a community, if we can call it that, you know, there were no records, that's, that's, that becomes significant enough so that people are going to want to lock that in the collective memory and embellish it and pass it on, not only from generation to generation, but from community to community. Well, the, yeah, that's, that's, that's a, a very concrete example of the, the oral record, as it were, supporting a documented uh, archaeological fact. Yeah. And, of course, it's a known ethnographic fact right. because the Jesuits, you know, and others thoroughly recorded uh, the torture and, and, right, and right, consumption right. Of, of individuals. Uh, and there's a lot of other cases where... Uh, the oral record has served to cast light on technological, military, and economic facts. What what it has the obvious opportunity of doing, if you're really trying to understand not only Native American, any culture, basically, mm. it adds dimensions which, with all due respect to certain groups of archaeologists who think that there's nothing that they can't uncover, it, it elucidates areas that that so far have escaped our most assiduous efforts to find out anything. You know, sometimes in, in, you know, in dealing with language, particularly language that's been harvested from oral traditions, there's no record at all. There's no written record, you mm -hmm. know, and this is one of the really tenuous things about what I do. And sometimes I find myself downright frustrated when all I'm dealing with is language, particularly language that is recited to me, which is the most intangible kind of thing that the human animal produces. I mean, the speech is here and gone in, in literally an instant. And there are times when I think, if only I had something like a book, you know, something I could hold in my hand, something that I could hear again and examine with my eyes. And it never occurred to me, via this whole issue of cannibalism and at what point in the development of a community it stopped, it never occurred to me to think about something that you just mentioned, that you know, that that you folks can look at human remains and as you say, determine how they were how they were destroyed, whether or not they you know, whether or not people were actually you know, I hate to use the expression, eating people. All right. So here it seems to me what you do once I become aware of it, can be used to corroborate at least a little bit some of the kinds of things that I do. You know, take the story of, of, of Abraham and Isaac. I mean, in, in the history of Western civilization, this is a real milestone because according to the Old Testament, it's at that point that God says you don't have to practice human sacrifice. You can sacrifice a surrogate. You know, that passage in Genesis is one of the most moving passages in, in all the literature that's come down to us, and it's so moving, the poignancy of it can survive the crudest translation. Mm -hmm. You know, is it possible to collate the kind of evidence you work with, with the, you know, with the, with the, the really ethereal kind of evidence that I work with, and reconstruct some of those great moments in the history of a civilization, of a community, that I would say are best 
expressed, if not recorded, by means of what I call poetry. Certainly, there are individual classes of activities. Uh, we, we seem to have somehow drifted to some of the gorier ones, like yeah, I, did, I didn't mean to do that. Yeah. But there are certain classes of behaviors which certainly uh, are represented not only in the oral record, but can be documented in the archaeological record. You could approach the whole issue of of the incidents of of human sacrifice in, in the Palestine or the Israel or the Jordan without avoiding political overtones right. to any of these terms, you can look at the uh, prehistory of that area and probably identify which populations at what point in time mm. practiced this on any kind of a scale at all or didn't and and try and look for the fit, if you will, mm -hmm. between the, in this case, the, the biblical record, the oral traditions encapsulated in the Bible. Right and the archaeological record, and indeed people do that all the mm. time, uh, it becomes progressively more difficult when the only record you have is the oral record as, as you've transcribed yeah. it. You could sit down and listen to a learned Seneca record or, or tell you uh, an incredibly diverse array of tales. Mm. And some of these are amenable to archaeological testing for sure. Mm. I mean, mm. they, they contain... Mm. Uh, in many instances, if, if they're of a practical nature, if they contain elements about subsistence activities, yeah. if they contain elements about something that leaves some tangible traces or, or otherwise alters the archaeological record, whatever that really means, then we can go look for it or we can use it as a clue to look for. But if it deals with things that don't, then it becomes progressively tougher to do that. Yeah, yeah. Not that it shouldn't be done. I certainly, uh, as we were discussing yeah. earlier, Lou Benford was certainly among the first individuals who regularly suggested to a receptive audience that we shouldn't be limited by what we attempt to extract from the ground, that we can't, we don't need to just reconstruct technology. We can reconstruct yeah. to a large measure if we know what questions to ask yeah. social organization and we can even yeah. approach ideology. Yeah. I don't know how well we approach ideology in the ground right now, but yeah. I think that's where the, the, the sharp interface potentially yeah. exists between what you try to do with the oral traditions of Native Americans and what archaeologists can do with whatever yeah. the material remains are they have to work with. Yeah. You know, I mean, uh, as I listen to you, I'm thinking about something that's really commonplace in the Southwest where I do most of my research. Something as simple as a cross. Mm -hmm. you know, two straight lines, perpendicular one another, suggesting the four cardinal directions. Now that looks like an innocent, abstract design. Mm -hmm. you know. Uh, and yet, when you collate that with stories, suddenly you realize that that, that simple designs maybe the simplest of all designs, really represents in a lot of ways a kind of effort to verbalize oneself or the collective self out of total chaos into some sort of order. And, and I look at those simple crosses a lot. And, and some of the things that Tony Avini talks about, you know, that pecked circle that, the, that he's found near naked eye observatories in Mesoamerica and some up into the 
southwest, and, and it seems innocent. It doesn't seem to tell us much, and yet it's a, it's a real concrete artifact. And it, it, it's duplicated in more ornate ways on pottery and mm -hmm. rock art and so forth. And, and to me, now that I've listened to stories, heard elders say on the Navajo reservation or in some of the Pueblo communities recite things which they swear to me go way, way back to, to what the Zunis call the Anute or the long ago when the world was soft. Those simple, simple crosses can communicate so much to me about who these people are what they were attempting to do. One that I discovered a couple of years ago was, was the, the Zuni creation story, uh, which I hadn't really, I really hadn't read it because I shouldn't say this on TV, but Matilda Cox Stevenson had gathered it, you know, and, and some people know about Tilly Stevenson, you know, that they, I mean, the Zunis themselves are fond of saying she literally beat information out of us. And <laughs> sometimes we would lie to her so just so she would Go away. let us alone. Yeah, yeah. Well, the, the, the Zia creation story that she got is full of analogs with the Navajo creation story. And the story begins with a character, a creature, uh, a genderless creature called Sasanako, who draws, if I remember correctly, creates out of her own body in a two-dimensional world a horizontal line going from east to west and then a vertical line going from south to north and just above the horizontal line, if I remember correctly, I may have my facts a little bit wrong, on each side of the vertical line she deposits two eggs which then hatch and become likenesses of herself at which point she is now a female. And she's associated with, she's called Thought Woman and then later on Spider Woman because it's the spider that can create lines out of its own body. And when you look at this very beginning of a story, you know, representative of a whole network of cultures that see life as emerging from within, you see that first move toward, and people who are interested in the arts are fascinated by this, this first move at converting chaos to order, you know, so that those perpendicular, those, that cross becomes a really valuable statement, it seems to me. And wherever I see it, on a, you know, on a, on the, on the side of an overhang, for example, uh, someplace in Chaco Canyon, and I don't know whether I'm running further with this than I should, it says something to me. I mean, it literally speaks because you can collate that with so many of the stories. I think to, to take this a little bit further, one of the one of the problems with contemporary American archaeology, in my mind, is that the average practitioner, as technically sophisticated as they might be, not only is, and there are probably chairpersons of dozens of anthropology departments around the country that are tearing their hair out over things like this, is bereft of a general appreciation either of, of, of cultural anthropology in its myriad details, of ethno-history, of oral traditions, and uh, sad to relate, would look at the same symbol you're looking at and say, gee, this was incised with an implement this long to this mm -hmm. depth mm -hmm. and give you every technical detail about this thing you'd ever want to know and it would be mute to him or right. her 
because they don't have the reservoir of oral knowledge or transcribed knowledge to understand, if you will, the culture. Uh, and I think a lot of archaeology is a a laudable attempt, if you will, to reconstruct or to to explicate uh, subsistence practices, technology, uh, social organization, and what have you. Whether or not it really its practitioners really understand the culture that they're looking at is seriously open to question because so much of what the kinds of things you deal with, that ethno historians deal with, and so on. Believe me, most archaeologists, even those that are considered experts in particular parts of the country, rarely have had the time to immerse themselves in enough of the extant native culture or the recently extinct yeah. but transcribed culture to put value to the glyphs on a wall, yeah. other than to say, well, gee, this is an interesting design and this is how it was made and, and I see it here and I see it in this place and I see it in that place. But I'm I'm almost dead certain that these things don't, speak to most of us the way they speak to you. Yeah, yeah. yeah but see, then again, in, in quote-unquote hearing them the way I do, am I playing too free and fancy with the archaeological record as it's commonly well, accepted? Well, to a large measure, I think some of the things, or a lot of the things that you concern yourself with, the archaeological record has very little to say about. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And it doesn't mean that you're being overly speculative or under-speculative. Uh, I don't think there are real limits to, to the possible interpretations that a given uh, enigmatic archaeological find might have, if you want to put it in the broadest sense. And I think that if somebody sits down and says, well, you can't say that or you can't think that, that's pure speculation. Believe me, we, we do it. We sound more scientific about it, but we do it continuously. We offer conjecture as archaeological fact, and I don't care how much money we spend collecting the data, I don't care how rigorously we collect the data, the conclusions we're drawing about the past are still, to a large measure, inferential, yeah. and therefore they're speculative. But see, I, I mean, Part of what frustrates me is that I have to make these inferences too because I can hear a storyteller now. I can go out to Pueblo Pantado and listen to a woman tell about how Spider Woman taught the people how to weave. And at the very most, that story may take me back 500 years, five centuries. And yet, uh, I want to believe that Spider Woman and all she represents is older than that. That you know that that kind of desire to make to to make order out of chaos and to equate that with engendering human life with re human reproduction has its origins back in you know in 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 pre-classical Mayan culture, but. Now I'm making inferences which, because I can't use any kind of material evidence, I can't verify anything in a material way, I'm making inferences too that are just as, just as hazardous. And what I keep wondering is, is there, is it, and this is, I mean, this is purely speculative, but is it possible to take the kind of thing you folks do, 
and the kinds of things I'm trying to do and build a firmer conception of North America's ancient past. To get to know these people the way we know the Greeks, you know, not only through their statuary and through their architecture, but through the stories that Homer tells. I think, I think the careful blending, the careful synthesis of, of the kind of information that you collect, the kind of information that archaeologists, geoarchaeologists collect, the, the data that's available to linguists, I think all that information can be effectively combined to certainly present a clearer picture and appreciation of the Native American cultures from a whole variety of perspectives that aren't normally done. But I think the activity of interdigitating that information is a very rare thing. Yeah. Uh, yeah. This, this conversation we're having now represents the first time since graduate school that I have discussed some of these issues again, and you know, it's 20, 20 some years right, ago that, right. that I hate to tell you how long it's been for me. <laughs> so it, it, it rarely, when you do find collaborating scholars who are willing to try and approach a problem from a variety of different perspectives like that, obviously I think the results normally radically enhance our ability to understand. Uh, yeah. They may be frustrating. Yeah. They may be, uh, certain things you can't ever approach, like the, the issue of tracing a particular myth or story that you know well back beyond where you have any indications that it was, except archaeologically, you may finally come into a literal stone mm -hmm. wall and not be able to go any further. But I think attempts to relate these kinds of oral traditions to the archaeological record serve to illuminate the past in a much clearer way than either one of them can do by themselves. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, and again, I think it's largely a question of training and exposure. Our, our graduate education has become so incredibly specialized that these days it's rare to find, I'm sure, well, I'm not sure because I, I don't know your field that yeah. well, but I, I would assume that a person who studies oral traditions or, or Native American poetry or something like that probably rarely works all over the United States where that kind of information can be pursued. I mean, you specialize yeah. in a particular area or several areas, you know, the Southwest yeah. and the Northeast or something. Archaeologists have gotten to the point where the vast majority of people who have recently acquired degrees have rarely worked outside of one specific prehistoric yeah. culture in one very restricted part of the world. So we really are losing the ability to generalize yeah. as the data sets that we are transmitting to students become more specialized. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I could have, I, when I think back on my own career, uh, I see how easily I could have fallen into that trap myself. I, my, my field was late medieval and early Renaissance literature. People are constantly saying to me, what's that got to do with Native American poetry, oral poetry? And yet, see, here's another Here's another good analog. We've talked about the so-called Holy Land, the, the, the Middle East. Take 
the story of King Arthur, or the whole network of stories of King Arthur. This comes as a surprise to some people, but oh, ever since 1200 AD or something like that, the European world has not undergone a quarter of a century without some other effort to retell the story of King Arthur. I mean, just think about the movies that have been made in our own lifetime, Once in Future King and Camelot and, and Excalibur. That's true. You know, the Arthurian story is told and told and told again. Now, the prototype, the, the prototype that, that we can trace as far back as possible is something, the written prototype is something that has been recorded in a book and called the Mabinogion. It's a series of stories that take place in what we now call Wales. It has to do with some of the same kinds of crude, what we would consider crude behavior like incest and cannibalism and, you know, and, and tribal warfare at its very ugliest and, and supernatural things where the the distinction between people and animals is not at all clear. And over the years, over the centuries, especially after the, the Norman conquest, after these French-speaking people have subdued these Celts and pushed them back into this remote, mountainous western part of what we now call England, once they're pacified, it's safe to go in there and harvest those stories and Christianize them and tame them down and readapt them to fit our electronic culture so they can be made into movies and <laughs> songs and stories for kids. And, That's true. You know, and, and we can, if we're really careful, we can go all the way back and do some really interesting things verbally by way of reconstructing what we would, what I, I'm, I'd be tempted to call a tribal culture, you know. I think that sort of thing has happened in North America with the, with the, with the coming of the so-called white man. I think that we can, I, I honestly think, now this is where, I mean, I'm really going out on a limb here. I honestly think that we have been more heavily influenced by these people or these peoples that we have subdued. I think that we have absorbed a lot of their culture you know, verbalized culture without not necessarily even knowing full well how we've done it. But the problem is that there is absolutely no written record, no written record. And, and we were talking about this before. All we can do, all I can do is reason by way of analogy. And yet I think that an ancient past, more of an ancient past than material culture alone yields, an ancient past can be reconstructed. Well, I, I certainly agree with that. And I think that archaeology obviously has its limitations in the extent to which we can purport to really understand anything. Uh, forgetting for a moment the, the probably intellectual vanity of purporting that we can understand any prehistoric culture and, and assuming that maybe to some extent that's possible, I, I clearly believe that it's not possible by archaeological methods alone. Yeah. And uh, yeah. presumably, if you're trying to capture something of the essence of populations that lived 500 or 5,000 or 50,000 years ago, uh, it certainly can't be done by 
oral traditions yeah. alone or anything yeah. else. And yeah. I think the, the only way to illuminate as much of an extinct or nearly extinct society as you can is to try and combine all these things yeah. to appreciate it. But your, your specific point that white Euro-American culture was probably much more profoundly influenced by groups, many of which we were clearly responsible for exterminating, is, is undoubtedly true. I mean, we always hear about the cases of of the tangible items that we extracted from, from local society, whether it's in the form of uh, corn, beans, and squash, right. and tomatoes, right. and peppers, yeah. or whatever. Uh, the, the subtler kinds of things that we may have picked up and the things that you specifically deal with, uh, whether it's rhetoric or expression mm -hmm. or, or whatever, uh, probably to a very large measure have had a greater impact in some areas with white Euro-American culture in North America as they clearly have, for instance, in Mexico. Yeah. Uh, yeah. We don't have the the enormous mestizo population that exists right. in Mexico in which you have a, uh, a synthesis or a blending or amalgamation of, of European traditions and Native American traditions, but to the same measure, we, we have had prolonged contact here in the Northeast, uh, the, the yeah, very areas yeah. that you're right, talking right. about. We have the, the remarkable situation that the the Seneca, the Onondaga, the Cayuga, the Tuscarora, and so forth are essentially, well, for the Tuscarora have moved, but essentially they're occupying territory that they occupied in pre-Columbian times, right, right. just like the, uh, the Pima and the Papago in Arizona right. are occupying territory they occupied in pre-Christian yeah, times. We, have no, we don't really know for sure. That's right. And yeah. uh, consequently, there's been a long period of time here with widely varying degrees of of interaction between Europeans, Americans, and Native Americans in the Northeast, the, the net effects upon the Indians, we seem to think we know better than we do upon ourselves. I keep coming back to really simple things. For instance, let's go back to the cross. You know, uh, people who can draw two perpendicular lines, one horizontal, one vertical, that are equal in length, can create two units of speech, sentences, what we might call paragraphs if we were working from text, whatever you want to call them, that would also be equal in length, equal in the kind of tonal variation as we go from syllable to syllable, mm -hmm. that language is always at work. And... Uh, and, you know, it's a, it's a vain chase, I know it is. But when I see the kinds of things you do and think about the kinds of material that you work with, I keep wanting to listen, you know? I keep wanting, I keep wanting to say, if it could speak, what would it tell us? And I want to believe that somehow we can recover something of, of that I don't even want to call it verbal information, something of that, that the non-material information that accompanies the material. That, back in the late 40s and early 50s, uh, there were several archaeologists, notably Walt Taylor, uh, who's now retired, who 
vehemently complained about the limitations of the archaeological record. In other words, complained about not only how we were going about doing our work, but the limits to which it was telling us anything. And that thread, of course, was picked mm -hmm. up by uh, others and, and notably championed by Benford. Uh, and all of it was directed toward trying to get the ground to tell us more yeah. about yeah. the people that lived on it. And I think echoing what you're saying, this is exactly what in, in rather more elegant and in some cases very tedious terms, the, the so-called post-processual English archaeologists are saying we, we, ought to, we ought to be doing these kinds of things now. We, we in effect, in order to understand uh, any prehistoric culture, you have to basically, and I'm drastically oversimplifying this, get into their heads. Yeah, right. And right, you get yeah, into their yeah. heads yeah. by some of the kinds of things that you're yeah. talking about and yeah. by archaeologists trying to, to take that kind of information that you come up with from oral traditions and effectively use it to make uh, the archaeological record tell us more than it's telling us. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't think, as, as we've gone around about this before, I think archaeology essentially loses its ability to explain anything, let alone to help us understand anything, when it automatically and in a very sterile fashion eliminates the kinds of approaches that you do, that people who deal with uh, art forms and their interpretations, that people who deal with the, the, the ideological side of culture deal with, no matter how many times the archaeologist says, well, I can't see that, I can't find that, it's not here. Well, in fact, there are ways of approaching it that are amenable to incorporating information like that that you generate. And I have to say this, that when I find something as small as a shirt with a stripe on it, a little stripe, knowing what I know now, I think it's far more exciting to me than it would be if I didn't know any of these stories and so on. Well, I think it probably, you know, I've worked in the Southwest for most of my life, and I've worked with material culture that's frequently highly decorated. And because I have, quite frankly, not spent anywhere near the amount of time that you have recognizing what particular things might mean, they don't talk to me. Yeah, yeah. Want more episodes like this? Don't forget to subscribe and get updates each week for the free-to-choose media podcast.